you're visiting, welcome. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. We are finishing uh, the book of Matthew today. Isn't that crazy? Two-year journey. That was either amazing and brilliant of us or incredibly foolish. But we took some breaks, to be fair, in it um, throughout the... But we will finish that. So, So Matthew 27, picking up in verse 57, we'll read through. But before I jump into the text... Uh, I got a quick announcement for you. Um, just a heads up on something I think a lot of you, hopefully a lot of you, w- will be interested in. We have a new Bible class, uh, a Bible reading class, really kind of launching uh, in, a, in a few weeks called Crave. Um, the idea for that, uh, for this class, is, is really kind of uh, generated from 1 Peter 2, um, verse 2. It reads this, like newborn babies, you must crave spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. That's one of the translations I really like of it. Like, what's spiritual milk? What's spiritual nourishment? I think in context, Peter's referring to mostly like the Word, the Scripture itself. Um, and so one of the great hopes we have here at the Oaks um, is this, basically, this won't, won't be a shocker to you, but one of our big pillars, visions of this church is that we'd be deep, disciples of Jesus. Like, in other words, we're not just interested here in the Oaks in just making converts. Don't hear me minimize that, but of course we want that. Uh, but it's that we also want to just make students of Jesus, like in the Jesus way of living life. Like that's what we really, really value. Um, and so we've, we've, we've worked hard over the years and we, we're all, always thinking about what, what creates that, what creates this deep uh, gradual growth, and our word for that is, you know, being rooted. We believe that we should be rooted in the Word. Uh, as, as disciples of Jesus, we think we should be rooted in prayer, and we think we should be rooted in community. And really, what I would tell you is, if you, if you have any value in my words at all, I would tell you all three of those are necessary if you want to follow Jesus. You need Scripture, you need prayer, and you need community. Like, if you get community, a lot of people these days will come to church and want community, They'll want friends or they'll want a small group, and that's wonderful. But if you get community without the scripture, you have a club. Like, that's really all it is. And it can actually go really haywire and be a destructive kind of community. Uh, If you have great word, like you're involved in the word, you read it, you're praying all the time, but you're not processing what you're reading and what you're learning about the Jesus way of living life, and you're not processing that with friends or another group of people, Honestly, you just have spiritual isolationism. You're kind of just a weird spiritual monk. Um, And actually, I would say you're very inadequate to navigate life. Uh, So what we want is both of those. But we also know, and I'm learning this over time, is it's like, man, the Bible's intimidating. Like for a lot of people, maybe you've been in the Bible your whole life and you're like, no, it's not. And it's like, you forget. Or you just don't know what it's like. Some of you didn't grow up around um, around the Bible and so, quite frankly, you look at this, a bunch of these, like, books that are put together, and there's all kinds of strange stuff in it, like wars and, like, uh, weird sex stuff. And Seriously, right? Like, it's weird. People with, like, all kinds of wives. Um, and what are the numbers? Like, what are the little numbers next to the sentences? I mean, nobody sat down. I mean, because most of us, if that's... Like, we haven't grown up around it. We're, like, embarrassed to ask questions like that. We wouldn't dare ask a question like that in church. And, like, that's silly. 
It's really silly because we should just all realize, like, hey, this stuff is helpful. We need to learn it together. And so we want to make sure that the Bible is something you really care about and something that you, you're open to learning and growing in. And, and so uh, we just want to do everything we can as pastors to, to teach it and help you engage in the Scripture and get the most out of it. So um, this class is for everyone. For those of you that are really familiar with it, um, that's with the Bible, that's okay. Honestly, sometimes familiarity is dangerous. Like you just have assumed for years that you get the text and maybe you don't. Um, and so it's for people that are really familiar with the Bible and people that aren't. Um, Pastor Barry will be teaching this class. Some of you are like, oh, I, you're like, you didn't have to say anything. You could have just said Pastor Barry and I would have signed up. And um, this is a direct quote from him. The class will be a healthy combination of personal study and community processing. The class will be made up of seven exercises. Each exercise will consist of self-guided solitude along with a convenient Zoom group to process your solitude. You're in now, right? You're in. So I, I really hope you'll, you'll, you'll sign up for that. Think about that for the summer. The summertime is a great time to, to do like a Bible study of sorts. So um, we, you, will be, you will see on your app today an opportunity to sign up for this class, Crave. And, and so just look into your Bible, or your, uh, the Oaks app on your phone and, and access it that way. All right? Okay. Let me pray, and we'll turn our attention to the Word, and, and we'll get going here. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we are, as we are gathered here in person, and there, we have brothers and sisters maybe at home um, tuning in with us. Uh, Father, speak. Speak to us. Meet with us here in your word. Reveal yourself to us. And so that we are not just astounded by you, but we are encouraged to follow you with everything we've got. That is my hope. That is my uh, great prayer uh, for myself, my family, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ right here, right now. Thank you for making it possible and help me to speak with clarity this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we always pray. Amen. Okay, let me pick up in the reading. It's a long reading. You can just stay seated. Um, We'll follow along. We're going to finish it up. So here we go. Starting in verse 57 of chapter 27, the book of Matthew, Jesus is, is dead now. And um, this is what we read. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen and shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So they're sitting there, grieving, looking at the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while uh, he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, 
so Sabbath for them is Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, so sun up, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. (laughs) Jesus is coming to life. The dead man is coming to life. The alive men outside are becoming dead. The beautiful, beautiful Matthew's irony. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come on, see. See the place where he lay. (laughs) Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. <laughs> I love this, by the way. Jesus literally come, he's risen from the dead and he says, hi. Hi. That's what it is. We had to write greetings because we want it to be more formal. But he literally says, hi. Hey, guys. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they'll see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people um, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he, we were asleep. And if, the, if, the, uh, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Two years. There you go. If you haven't read an entire gospel... And you're maybe just visiting with us, man, so good. I am different. I am a different person because I studied the book of Matthew with you. It's been amazing. You know what's interesting about this story for me? Like, as you stand back and look at it all, because really I kind of just want to do a summary of it. But what's interesting about the story is that it begins, it begins, it began a long time ago. Uh, you probably don't remember it, but it begins with the birth of Jesus. And, um, and do you remember how the announcement of that goes? Like, it's real famous, you know? You know, Mary is, this teenage girl is visited. You're going to have a son, this immaculate conception, all that. Um, and then an angel also visits Joseph, her betrothed. And as he's struggling, because he's like, we didn't, we didn't, I don't know. Um, and then, you remember the angel says what to him? He's, she's going to have a son, and he's, he's Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. That's at the very beginning. And then how does it end? The very end. 
We just read it. Here at the end of the story, what's the last line of Jesus? Who is God in the flesh? What's he say? I'm with you always. That's the brackets of the whole story. Isn't that cool? God is with you. God is with you. Now, here's the thing. Stop for a moment. If that's the brackets of the story, what's the key? One of, at least, <laughs> the key implications for you as a Christian, or you want to be a Christian, or you're thinking about that, or whatever it is. What's one of the key implications for you? The fact that he, the claim is that God is with you. He's come for you, and he's with you now, even now. I think it's this. You don't have to be afraid. Like, you don't have to be afraid. You really can become someone who's full of courage in the face of anything. Because if you believe that God has truly come, like God is not only real, that he's come for you and he's with you now. What else, think about this, what else do you actually really need? Just let it, you know. Easier said than done, I know. I know, I know fear is like, like a struggle for me. I got a piece of artwork I'll show you. It's, this is in my house. I have it hanging up for me and my girls to see on a regular, regular basis. Um, this is a piece by, um, anybody know Scott Erickson? He goes by Scott the Painter. Anybody? Yes, I'm in. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, his work is amazing. I love everything he does. Um, but anyway, this is a piece that I look at daily. Daily, I see this piece. This piece, his written up um, thing on this is, this. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a, a lion that's blinded by a banner. It's got arrows, obviously, on its side, and it says, be not afraid. And, and what uh, Scott talks about is this idea that life leaves you wounded and life leaves you blind. But you hear, you know, the words, be not afraid from God, and you keep going. I love it. I look at it every day when I drink my coffee. Because, I, you know, you can't get very far in life without courage. You just can't. You, you need courage. Like life beats us down and we struggle and we get afraid. And maybe I'm just an overly fearful person. That's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm fighting against it. Um, and so we want to step into this. And I think it's an actual reality. Uh, but it's really difficult to practice this idea that we don't, we have God with us, we don't need to be afraid. And, and so um, what I want to do here is just look at three struggles that I think we have with the story, the story of the gospel. Three struggles that we need to be aware of and, and need to learn how to push back against because if we don't know these struggles, we're going to really be swallowed up by fear at times, okay? So three struggles that we all have with the gospel the story, the whole story that we've read. You either, you're either coming in this morning having them right now, or you're going to have them at some point. Um, and so the, the first one is this, the goodness of the claim. Just the sheer goodness of the claim of the gospel. You're struggling with it. And you're like, what? How, how is it that I'm struggling with the goodness of the gospel? Like, it's the good news. It's amazing. Oh, oh, oh you're struggling with it. You are. You're a human being. I'm telling you, we all, here's what I mean. Guys, I've already said Jesus was dead. Like, Jesus was really dead. Matthew's kind of some of the little parts and details of the burial and all of it. That's why Matthew's putting it in there. He wants you to know people saw him, wrapped up, lifeless, being laid in a niche, in a tomb, all of that. So it's undisputed. Um, It's undisputed by historians. We know Jesus was actually dead. And so uh, Matthew goes out of his way to highlight all of that, and there were witnesses to it. Who were the witnesses? 
The women. Man, the women. They were faithful and loyal all the way through. Two different Marys, according to, to Matthew. And where are they? They're sitting right in front of the tomb looking at it. I mean, they're practically going back, back to that tomb throughout the whole weekend. And Mark tells us um, why they're there. As Matthew doesn't really include it. He just says they're looking at it. But Mark says that they're there to cover his body in spices. Because that's the proper burial for the, you know, for the Jews. The, the proper burial was you, you would take the body, wrap it in linen uh, with all sorts of spices. You lay it kind of in the tomb that goes underground. And within a big tomb, a big, like a rich man's tomb, like Joseph's tomb, there's niches that go up about six feet and six feet down into the ground. And then th- these bodies are laid into these niches. And then... They leave it for six months to a year. They let all the organic material decompose. Sorry if I'm grossing you out. And then they go back. And they take the body back out. And they take all the bones of your loved one or your friend. And then they put them in a little box. And then they put the box back in the niche. That's what happens. That's what took place. And so that's what the women are doing. Because Jesus' body has been rushed. It's been rushed and placed in there, and these women are there to anoint him with spices. Now, is that all that they're doing? And well, let me ask it this way. What are they feeling? Ask yourself, what the, I mean, the women have been following him this whole way through. Heck, the women have been funding the Jesus movement. That should be a, a hearty amen for all you women in the room. Uh-huh. It's the women. They're the ones funding Jesus' movement. And so what are they feeling? What's going on inside them? It's not just grief. I can tell you, it's also resignation. They're totally resigned. Because here's what's going on inside them. You know, not just that Jesus meant the world to them. He brought healing. He announced this new kingdom of justice and mercy. And here he is, lifeless, being put in a tomb because the evil power brokers of the world, like usual, get their way. So they're thinking... Like this, and you've had moments where you think just like this. You think, "Mm mm-hmm, this is the way things go, man. Rich stay rich, poor stay poor. The powerful stay in power, and the evil get their way. Good things, or sorry, bad things happen to good people. That's just life. You ever had one of those moments? You've had one of those moments where you're kicking the tires, both literally, maybe, metaphorically? Like, yeah, this is just, this is how, of course, this day's going to go. You're just resigned to, how, to bitterness, to anger, to disappointment. Life is just broken, and there's nothing we can do about it. That's what the women are feeling. But right in the midst of feeling that way, the earth shook. Earthquakes. Is there literally earthquakes? I honestly don't know. Probably. Matthew reports it. But either way, I think what it's saying is, is this moment was earth-shattering. And there's no way to describe it. An angel comes down and talks to them and he says, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he has said. Come. And I love this. I love this. He doesn't say, take my word for it and go. Does he? What's he do? He's like, come on. I get it. You're struggling. Come on in. Look. Like the whole idea that the Christian faith is not logical or rational is silly. It totally is. They totally get an opportunity to process it. That's what the angel's doing. Here, process it for yourself. Look. And then, after you've done some processing, go. Go tell the brothers that he's risen from the dead. And he'll be in Galilee. And then it says this, verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. 
and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. So they didn't, must have got very far. Um, and Jesus is like, hi. Got, hey, gals. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. Now, here's my question. Ready? How do you have fear and joy in the same moment? Seems like contradictory emotions, doesn't it? It does to me. But actually, when you think about it, it's not. It's not at all. You can. You can be full of dread and great joy at the same time. The best example I can give you is the birth of my two kids. <laughs> right? I was witness both of them. They, it, it, it was earth-shattering, to say the least. Um, but what I can tell you is, of course, there was this amazing joy because I'm looking at this little purple miracle <laughs> covered in things. Uh, but I think it was my second daughter, Winnie, that um, I really particularly struggled with. I, I, I was really... She came out, she was, she was some really strange... Uh, she looked strange. And, and um, I, I, I love her, I'm just saying. Um, and at, at the time, and she wasn't making a lot of noise. And uh, I remember them being, I mean, what to me as a father standing there like, oh my. Uh, they were being quite, to me, rough with her, you know? I mean, it was just slapping, you know what I mean? And like, did, I'm like, are we? And I was panicking. I mean, like, dread. Any fathers with me? I mean, you've been there? like Because we're the ones that watch it, you know? And uh, we're not drugged up. And uh, so, I, but I remember hovering. They, they took her, not, not too long after, over to the cart thing. And then, I don't know any of this I'm talking about, clearly. Any of you nurses are like, oh my gosh, she is an idiot. Um, and while they're cleaning her up. And, but they don't look panicked. And I, so I, I'm hovering. I'm firing questions. You know, I'm probably doing my, like, stress thing I do where I'm rubbing my face. Finally, the nurse, pretty, I mean, she was very kind, but also pretty firm. She finally looked at me and said, Dad, relax. She's fine. Like, because, you know, this, this thing is so frail. You, you, really, you really experience frailty, how fragile we really are, like at the beginning of life and at the end, you know? And... You see that, and you're so full of joy, but you're also just, it's terrifying. I mean, to be a parent is absolutely terrifying. And I think, why, what's going through my head in that moment in the hospital room? Here's what I'll tell you. I've thought about this, actually, all week. What is it? Here's what it is. Too good to be true. Too good to be true. When you see a birth, it seems too good to be true. Maybe, like, when you got married, it's too good to be true. I don't know what your thing is, but you've got a thing. And when you experience something that's too good to be true, you get afraid. You get afraid. Why do you get afraid? Because life wants to squeeze out this idea that something could be that good. That there is something that could be really that good. And that's what we struggle with. We actually struggle with things in life that seem too good to be true. We look around and we see tragedy abuse, neglect. We experience so much unfairness at times. And we hear constantly we're barraged from a secular world 
that says what you need to do in the midst of life's tragedies is cope. Learn to cope. Get some coping mechanisms. This is what we promote. And so what it does is what I think over time, what happens to us is what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls disenchantment. We have no room, no space. We have no imagination for magic. Anybody like kid movies, like Disney movies? Anyone? Am I the only adult in the room? Thank you. Why do we love them? Because they're animated? Nope. You know why you love them? Because they have happy endings. It's true. Mm-hmm. Happy endings. And so for me, I'm drawn to them, and I'm at the place now in my maturity, I don't care. Because I want to hold on to my sense of enchantment. Enchantment. I don't want to be robbed of it anymore. I don't want it to be squeezed out of me. And so this signal um, is happening in this moment. And it's saying this thing seems so good to be true. And the women are struggling with it. You see, the women are not just terrified because they're hearing the resurrection took place. or they're seeing that the resurrection took place. They're also scared because the joy of what this means is too good to be true. The resurrection of Jesus didn't just mean that Jesus truly is the son of God, although that's amazing, that he has ultimate power and authority, although that is totally amazing. What this meant was a whole new reality, a whole new way of seeing the world, a whole new kind of story is opening up right in front of them. And it's actually in the very first verse of chapter 28, and you don't even know it. You just blow over it. You think it's just a minor detail. Here's what it says. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Why is that information there? Here's why that information is there. It's subtly telling you this is Genesis 2.0. That's what it's saying. You see, at the resurrection, something happened, and it was God signaling to the earth, I'm not done, and I'm starting over. This is a whole new earth and a whole new humanity. It's a whole new project, and the first one who gets it started is Jesus. He's the first fruits. He's Adam 2.0, but this Adam's not going to die the way Adam, the original one, was not, was not supposed to die. Do you see that? That's what's taking place. A whole new creation is opening up into the world. It's breaking in. Right into history. It's fascinating. This Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he's brought this whole new age with him, which includes a whole new people who, by faith in him, get reborn. You've heard this language before if you're a Christian. You get reborn and you will also live forever just like him one day. He's the imprint, he's the image of what you will be. It's fascinating. So, this signal, this claim, seems too good to be true to anyone who's been beat up by life just like these women. And you come in here this morning, some of you, and you've been beat up, man, by life. So what do you do with this, what I'm telling you? Here's what you have to learn to do if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. You have to learn to challenge your disenchantment. You have to, I'll put it this way. You have to challenge your cynicism. Your cynicism. You have to challenge your bitterness. You do. I mean, we all wrestle with it at times. But you have to look at... You get, here's what you have to do. You have to ask your question this. When you are struggling with bitterness, because you do or you will, you know, or you're struggling with anger, massive disappointment, ask yourself this question. What is the story that I'm telling myself? 
Now, I'm not talking about the, self, the, the story about you. I'm not saying, although that's a good question. I'm not saying, like, what's the story I'm telling about myself? But I'm saying, what's the story I'm telling myself about the world? Is it that the rich stay rich, the poor stay poor, and that's the way it's always going to be? Is that the story? That, 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 that bad things happen to good people, and that's just the way it's always going to be? That's the way cynics talk. And cynicism is all rooted in anger. We are angry with God. We are trying to manage our disappointment and our frustration with God because we're not open to telling a different story. We're not open to the possibility that this story has not really broken yet because this story is saying something completely different than that. Yes, life is hard. Yes, it beats you up. Yes, it squeezes you. And it wants to make you a bitter cynic. But if this is real and this is true, we have to challenge that cynicism. We have to lay our angers and our, and our bitterness, our, 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 our sense of hopelessness. Speak it. Tell it to him. Go to him. Reason with him about that. Our hope, our ability to be full of courage is contingent upon the story that we're telling ourselves. We do not have a tomb to run to. That's for sure. We don't. But we have a God who is always watching and listening. And we must absorb this story and we must draw near to him in prayer saying, God, keep me open to a different story. Like the moment I start to feel cynicism creep in, you know, like this is just how the world works and resign myself. This is when I need to go to God in prayer and say, God, keep me open to a different story. There is another story. There is another way of looking at the world. There is a way of saying, yes, this is awful and hurtful, but there's something else. That's what the Christian does. Keep me open to the idea that what I see around me sometimes is not all there is. Despite how it looks, God is, through His Son, He is taking this world over very gradually to his life-giving love and rule. That's the story. It seems too good to be true, I know. The second thing we must do, the second struggle, it's not just the goodness of the claim that's hard for us, but it's the audacity, the audacity of the invitation. Now, by audacity, I'm meaning the seemingly recklessness of who God calls and who he uses. You know, we've seen Jesus' audacious love for uh, unlikely people throughout the whole story. If you've read through one of the Gospels, you know that. Um, it's highlighted repeatedly. But here in, the scene, in this, this ending scene that we read, it's scattered through the whole thing. Like first, notice the burial scene. Um, who is this Joseph guy? Like, you've never heard about him before in the story, have you? No, like you don't remember. This is the only time he's really mentioned. What do you know about Joseph? The Joseph that has him buried. What do you know about him? What's the context clues tell you? You know three things, right? Um, what are they? You, you know where he's from, Arimathea. You know he's rich. Yep, we're told that. And we know that he's a disciple of Jesus. Now, which one of those class doesn't belong? <laughs> which one doesn't fit? That he's rich. And you should be thinking that and saying that because you've heard Jesus say something incredibly disheartening about rich people. Do you remember? It was back in his teaching. He made this comment back in Matthew 19, verse 24. Again, I tell you, this is Jesus talking. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So did a camel go through the eye of a needle here for Joseph? Like, 
What's going on? Because we're very clearly told he's a disciple of Jesus. And this guy is, man. What you have to realize is, is this guy is wealthy. He has had an entire family tomb built into the ground with stone and plaster. There's niches covered in this tomb for his entire family to be buried in. It's a lot of money. It's not like he chiseled it out. He paid people to do this. When Jesus dies, he's so in love and so wanting to honor Jesus, he's like, you can have the whole thing. And he just puts Jesus in it. He totally honors Jesus. If it wasn't for this rich man, Jesus doesn't get honored in his burial. It's fascinating. So did an camel go through the eye of a needle? No. But if you remember, Jesus immediately, the disciples hear Jesus say that, you know, about rich people, and they're like, well, then who can be saved? Right? And Jesus says this, well, with man, this is impossible. But with God, anything is possible. Somehow, even with all the riches, all his riches, God broke through to Joseph. He broke through to him. And he honors Jesus with this tomb. Secondly, it's not just the, this guy Joseph. You have the women themselves. I mean, if you settle for a casual reading of the, of the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, or one of the other Gospels, if you just settle for a, a casual, careful, uncareful, sorry, reading of the story, you might think that Jesus really only called and used men. Wrong. Wrong. But actually, the, whole, the first disciples and movement of Jesus was a co-ed group of people. It was a co-ed group. Male and female. These women are right here, and they, they get the privileged invitation to be the first witnesses and the first missionaries to the resurrection. Now, why does Jesus do that? Is it just because he thinks it's fair? Because the reality is, you know, the, these, these few women are the, the ones that have probably been arguably the most loyal and faithful to Jesus. They, they followed him. They funded him. Um, they were at the crucifixion itself when most of his disciples were not there, Right? They follow him to life, his lifeless body. To you, do, Think about it, guys. We wouldn't even know the details of the tomb scene if it wasn't for the women. They're the ones that told the story. They were the only ones there. So when Jesus resurrects and he wants to visit people for the first time, he visits the women. Why? Because he's just being fair. It's like, well, I'll give them, throw them this bone. They've been super loyal. I think it's more than that, right? He's communicating something fascinating it's not just because they deserved it. He's saying, uh, once again, Jesus is signaling to the world that he calls and uses a broader group than you typically think. As modern people, we like, or at least hopefully we should like, the fact that the first followers of Jesus were made up of men and women. But women in this day, in their context, were second class. I don't feel that way the, that they did, okay? Uh, just clarify the women in that day were not even qualified to testify in court. They weren't even respected enough to testify in court. And yet Jesus makes them the first missionaries and the first witnesses. So purposeful of Jesus. He's the new world that Jesus is creating. The world that he's gives the, the word that he gives them first is he goes, say, go tell your brothers, <laughs> go tell your scared brothers that I'm alive and what I'm up to. And lastly, you look at the remaining 11, the end of the scene, they get the orders to go to Galilee. Jesus shows up and we read this. And when they saw him, this is just the remaining 11 disciples, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Why are some of them doubting? Now, I think it's more than just simply that it's because that he's been resurrected and they don't know for sure if he's been resurrected. He's standing right in front of them. We don't know, but it's likely what they're doubting is they're standing with him, like relationally. They have failed miserably. They don't know what he's going to do. Will he accept them back? Will he be kind to them? Will he still use them? They've really screwed up. I mean, they've abandoned their best friend in his worst trying moments. So maybe they're doubting that he could possibly forgive them and still use them. And by the way, who's doubting? Which ones? Are all of them doubting? Are a few of them doubting? Does it matter? Well, I think it only matters, I think, to Matthew in the sense that Jesus doesn't get hung up on it. He doesn't separate them, does he? He doesn't say, all right, you worshipers over here, you doubters over here. I'll get to you guys in a second. Right now, I want to deal with the worshipers. He just says, what's he say? Get going. Even with your doubts. He says, peace be with you. That's from other versions of the gospel. We know that. And then he essentially says, look, I'm fully in charge now in heaven and earth. I'm the king of it all. I'm going out to all the nations. Everybody's going to get a part of this. And you're part of the work I'm doing. Get going, guys, even with your doubts, even with your struggles. Here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to hear. This is essentially how it goes with God's new community. One commentator put it like this. Christian faith and life is bipolar. Disciples live their lives between worship and doubt all the time. The good news is, is that Jesus still uses and communities and disciples that have fits and starts. That's, that's the reality. So my point is, Jesus is audacious enough to invite, after you take them all together, he's audacious enough to uh, invite and call the poor, the rich, the uneducated, as well as the educated, the underbelly of society, the insignificant to the world, and the prominent. And he still uses those who screw up and that still struggle with doubts. So what do you do with that? What are you doing with that? It would be the second tool that I would think would be helpful for you. Learn to challenge your insecurities, man. Like, because you have them. At one way that... In theology, we like to say it is doubts your doubts. Like as doubts come in about your own past and standing, doubts, when doubts come in about who God is and what he's up to, doubt, doubt your doubts. Like wrestle with these. Challenge, challenge your worldly performative mentality when it comes to discipleship, both about yourself and other people. Because it's always creeping in on you. And you, you know that I've, Ronald Rollheiser, I remember he talks about spiritual formation and he says something I think is very helpful that almost most, most people, maybe all people early on in their Christian life, their spiritual journey, always struggle with the sins of the prodigal son. You're, you're sleeping around, you know, you're doing drug, whatever, like you're just acting crazy, like lies abound. I don't know what all the prodigal nature to your, your life and the faith is like, but that's what it's like. Some of it because of your age and your hormones some of it's whatever, other reasons. But he says, eventually, as you remain loyal to Jesus, you no longer really struggle with the sins of the prodigal. You struggle with the sins of the older brother. 
You start to have enough years under the belt being a Christian and you've gotten rid of all the sleeping around and you've gotten rid of all the drinking and the this and then that and what I don't have any... You understand what I'm saying, right? And eventually, what your greatest struggle is, you're like, why in the world is this person... God? No. Mm-mm. Too dirty. Too dirty. I'm not coming into the party. Nope. That's the life. You know, we struggle with these things, man. We must be challenged with these things. Not just the goodness of the claim. It's really that good. And it's like really that risky. Like it's that audacious. He really does invite not just lower class people or whatever, and not just higher class people, the people that you don't like, but he also calls and uses people that have really screwed up. And he's giving them another shot. Like that's the way he is. Start serving, start loving, live as a gospel witness everywhere you are, and don't forget for a second, that your sense of inadequacy in yourself or your, your feeling that that person is super inadequate, don't let it stop you from your being loyal and moving forward. Trust me, we all feel inadequate and we all fight shame. Everybody is fighting shame. Everyone. Lastly, and I'll be brief here, we struggle with the intimacy that Jesus offers. After commissioning the disciples, Jesus says, verse 20, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Never once does Jesus stop seeing them as they truly are, as well as you, as you truly are. Human beings with frailties and struggles. Here's the thing, friends. If Jesus didn't respect our frailty and humanity and that the loyalty that is required of us to everything that he's taught and how that feels super risky for us, and it puts us in places of loneliness and fear. If he didn't know that that would happen and we would feel that way, he wouldn't have said this. But he includes it at the end purposely. He never once, Jesus never once commands us to shed our frailty and our humanity. He simply commands us to go out in loyalty and trust in his divine presence at all times. That's his expectation. So I will just say this. We must learn to challenge the nagging idea that pops into your head that he's abandoned you. Because I know some of you this morning, that's exactly what you feel, or you have felt it in the past, and you will certainly deal with it in the future. You, at some point, you will start to feel like, God, where are you now? Here's what I would say. He might be pruning you. He might be challenging you. The scripture says this. He might be putting you in a really risky, uncomfortable place, but the one thing that Jesus hasn't done is abandoned you. I promise you that. One of the best ways I've learned to practice remembering his divine presence, because I struggle with these things too, is to think about how you show up. How do you show up to things? Now, specifically this. How do you show up to the word? How do you show up to prayer? And how do you show up to like church service like this? How do you show up? Like take the word. When, when you open your Bible, do you enter into it for information? Just for knowledge? Uh, just for a history lesson? Or just from how-tos? Or 
Like, how do you do? How do you show up to it? Because here's what I would tell you. Learn to do this. Learn to open your Bible as frequently as you can and say to yourself this, Lord, you are meeting with me right here in this. Your very presence is in this text. I don't know how it's going to work, but I trust that you're meeting with me. Reveal yourself to me in a fresh way. Reveal yourself to me in a fresh way. It's in the same, same in the church service. We don't invite God in here. You don't, y- y- y'all didn't invite God to be here. God was here waiting for you. I, I know a pastor out west who's in a pretty secularized area, and he says he gets so frustrated when church planters show up to his city and say, bringing God to the city. And he's like, you act like God wasn't already here. <laughs> like, it's this idea that we have, that like God is all in every, every hard meeting you go in this week. God is in that meeting waiting for you. He's up to something. He's doing work. The question isn't whether God is with you. The question is, is are you attentive? Are you attentive? Are you slowing down enough in life to listen? Because here's what I would say as we end this way. Challenge your cynicism. Challenge your bitterness. Challenge your insecurities. Challenge your perfectionism. Strive for loyalty in everything he's taught you. Trusting that he's with you every step of the way. It's in the journey, this journey that I'm talking about, this journey of looking for obedience to Jesus. He wants us to do everything he's taught us here. Everything. It's in that journey that he will, when we strive for that, he will reveal himself to us. And it's in his presence, right? It's in his presence we find perfect love. And um, it's when you feel most loved, right? It's when you feel most loved. It's, that's when you feel the, the least amount of fear. Like fear, like re- terrible dread and fear is not comba- pa- compatible when you feel really loved on. Like that's why... Kids, like when they're hugged by their parent tight, the fear starts to go away. It's the same with God. When we spend time with him, the fear starts to go away. So I don't know as we come to, you know, the, the bread and the, and the cup here, we come to the Lord's table. I don't know which of the three you're struggling with. Maybe all three. I don't know which one maybe is drawing up or stirring up comforts in you or convictions in you. If you're like me, you're struggling with all three at different times. And so, but I would ask of you, if you're a Christian this morning, as you take part in the Lord's communion, ask the Lord to reveal himself to you and find out what's going on inside you. Lay some of these things before him. To the degree that you wrestle with these things, asking God to lead you through them will be the degree that you gradually shape your heart with courage. This little wafer at the top, is Christ's body broken and the little cup of juice underneath is Christ's blood shed. And so as you take it out, put, place this on your tongue and drink down the juice, what we are remembering is the Lord's death until he returns. We are remembering that we have communion with God because of Christ's work and we fill ourselves with that idea. We need that story. That's the story we need to tell ourselves daily and daily and daily. And if you're new to the faith or you're not certain and you have questions, please reach out to us. We would love to walk you through it. Let me pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. May we become a courageous people over time, wrestling against the goodness of your story, the goodness of what you've done, 
wrestling with who you invite, who you let in, who you call, and wrestling with the fact that we sometimes feel like we've been abandoned. But the truth of it is, you are with us. Your spirit is here. Your spirit is inside us. Make us an attentive people. By your grace, do this in all of us. We love you and we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.